Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. There have been about 355 of them now, so if this is new to you, you could go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, look under the past interviews menu, and you'll see all the previous ones categorized in various ways. You can explore those. Um, this program is made possible by the support of generous and appreciative viewers and listeners. So if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it, that would be great. Um, there's a donate button on the right-hand side of every page on batgap.com. And if you don't like PayPal, uh, which some people don't, then there's a donate donation page which explains other ways of doing it. My guest today is Annette Karlstrom. I'll just read the little bio she sent here. Annette is an internationally recognized speaker, author, and teacher in development of consciousness, living in Helsingborg, Sweden. Her focus and specialty is guiding the individual and groups towards finding your inner compass to discover your full potential and true nature. Annette also has a strong presence in chanting sacred mantras, offering mantra concerts, as well as having recorded several CDs carrying the transmission of divine grace through the oneness blessing, easily accessed by simply listening. She is the author of two acclaimed books. In her first, From the Heart, she shares her bumpy journey of consciousness, of conscious awakening and natural transformation, as well as answering sensitive and profound questions. Her second book, Namaste, Awakening the Power of Presence, is a roadmap and extraordinary guide exploring the sacred truths that are hidden in our everyday life. It is filled with wonderful guided meditations and anecdotal stories. <clears throat> Annette is the founder of Diamond Life Foundation, an alternative health practice and meditation center in southern Sweden, where she gives weekly programs, courses, and guided meditations, as well as giving craniosacral treatments. Since 2003, she's been traveling around Europe and the world, sharing her story, teaching, and singing. When she chants and speaks, there is a natural transfer of grace that is received, either in person or over the phone. She is initiated to give the oneness meditation, um, which is sacred transmission of energies that accelerate awakening to the intelligence of the heart. She offers online oneness meditations every Tuesday evening, Swedish time, on her free live stream channel. And I'll be providing a link to that live stream channel on BethGap.com. Um, so viewers may recall that uh, I had a guest on here a couple of years ago named Eric Eisen, who's a very old friend of mine, uh, who is also a teacher of oneness meditation. And we, we talked a bit about that. But we won't presume in this interview that anybody knows anything about it. And we'll have, we'll have Annette explain it to us. Um, but maybe for starters, it would be interesting to hear about your... Um, your bumpy journey. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> my bumpy journey. Um, I think it started as long back as I can remember. I've always been a seeker of truth or the seeker of why am I here? You know, as long back as I can remember. I think I was three years old when I started questioning things and wanting to find out and living in a mostly atheistic country. You know, people are not so interested in spiritual questions in, in my country or my part of the world. Uh, I grew up in an academic, more scientific family and nobody really had these kind of questions. So I just came in with that. And uh, I remember seeing uh, some Sunday school or something next to the little store that I used to go to with my mom. And I said, oh, I want to go there. There was like these colored windows with angels and Jesus and things. 
So I was, you know, sent to this Sunday school to learn all about Jesus and God. And I took it upon me very seriously. I remember asking my little friends, you know, do you believe in God? Do you believe in Jesus or none? Or I wanted to know why are not people, more people interested in this? So my bumpy road started as far back as I can remember. And I come from a very nice family and a very nice upbringing. And there was no reason for me to be in some kind of a pain. But all my life, I've been having some kind of inner restlessness, not satisfied with life, wanting to know this, is there a God or not? And I took it upon me very seriously to pray every evening, you know, the traditional, the, uh, praying um, with, on my knees. And then I started to question, what am I saying? You know, why is this prayer? Only people who pray will get help. And so it is from that perception of wanting to find something that could go in any religion or outside any religious or spiritual path. So, I was just going to say, so, you know, as you got older and you probably began to explore actual various spiritual paths like most of yes. us did, right? Yes, that's true. When I was very small, I used to have this expansion of con what I know now is expansion of consciousness. I thought it had something to do with my pajamas. Because <laughs> <laughs> you'd put them on and, uh, at that time and then have a big expansion. I had this blue silk pajamas and I used to put my thumb in it like you know little children do that was my comfort and I put my thumb in it and I did like this and then yeah. I would hear the sounds and I would go into the sounds and I would, poof, I would be outside the body mm. and I did this every night and I thought everyone did this and it had something to do with this you know thing with the thumb and so just just the sound of rubbing the silk together kind of triggered a, a transcendent experience no it was an inner sound Inner sound, okay. Inner sound, of like some kind of rhythmic uh, inner sound that was very beautiful. What I now know, many years later, I got introduced to uh, Nada Yoga, you know, mm -hmm. the inner sound, the yoga of inner sounds. Mm -hmm. It was just, I just had those experiences and I thought everyone had that. Yeah. And I wanted, I loved going to sleep every night because then I would have, you know, the thumb thing. And, and this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yes, many years later, we moved to Helsingborg where I live now. And uh, I got confirmation then in school, and I wanted to ask the priest a lot of questions that I had because I was not satisfied with, uh, no clarity about this, but I was too shy. I had developed a very great shyness of feeling different because the way I was was very different from others. Uh, also moving from Stockholm, which is the capital of Sweden, to Helsingborg, which is down south, at that time, it was not so common. So I was teased in school and I became too shy to question things. Mm. Those years were probably the hardest because this presence or this longing for uniting with the presence within was still so strong, maybe stronger than ever, because I didn't feel like I belong in this world. Mm. So I left Sweden just to be away for three months because I wanted some sunshine. I thought my suffering had something to do with the weather. <laughs> <laughs> Must be something with the Swedish weather. And in Helsingborg, it's very windy. So I thought if I could just get some sunshine for a little while, I'll be fine. So 
Destiny had me go to the City of Angels, and I thought that was so beautiful in California. Oh, Los Angeles. Yes. So I was there for three months, and then I was supposed to study chemistry and, and go the scientific route like the rest of my family. I got accepted at the university in Sweden uh, to be a chemist. But Destiny wanted something else for me. My whole life changed over there. Not that it did it got less bumpy. It actually probably got more bumpy at that time. Um, by coincidence, I ended up in Hollywood at the recording of TV shows. Uh, I worked in a family taking care of their children as an au pair, it's called, when right. you live inside. So I was going to do that for three months. But on my day off one day, there was a man coming in the car and I did something that only a Swede would do. <laughs> Not knowing, you're not supposed to do this, but he rolled down the window and he said, you want to come with me to see a, a TV show? And I go, oh, cool, yes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I just left the bike and I got into the car and this was in Orange County, so it was maybe an hour and a half or two hours ride up to Hollywood. And I thought, I didn't even know that Hollywood was around there. And I was just like, wow, this is so cool. And um, luckily, you know, he was taking me to this Hollywood studio. Uh, and once coming there, we were there to be audience, you know, to actually sit there and laugh at, uh, you know, the sitcoms. Mm -hmm. And um, at the uh, break then, the bathroom break, I went uh, to find the restroom and I got lost on this uh, Paramount picture a lot that we were at, lots of buildings. And uh, <laughs> so there was this guard and the TV uh, light, the news light, and he said, you look lost, and I, I was very scared, I said, I don't know where I am, and how do I get back, and he heard on my accent, oh, you're from Sweden, we have also a newscaster who is from Sweden, do you want to meet her, he mm. said, so again, sometimes we have these meetings, you know, and the whole life changed, yeah. so it's like, oh, yeah, cool, so I got in to meet Christine Lund, who is the newscaster for ABC Television, uh, Channel 7 News at the time, she looked like she could be my aunt, you know. So we kind of connected in a very strange way. She hadn't spoken Swedish since she was six years old. So she enjoyed speaking little Swedish. And um, just at that time, she heard what I had done, that I had come there with this man. And he had also then found me inside the news station. And uh, she said in Swedish to me, you know, you shouldn't just jump into people's cars like that. It's, you sh it's not a good idea. Yeah. And she felt some kind of protection for me. So she helped me. Uh, and she helped me also uh, to start working for ABC News and uh, Paramount Picture as a guest relation hostess. Mm. So that was change. So I called my mom and dad and said, yeah, I'm not going to be a chemist. I'm going to work in Hollywood. <laughs> of course, that's not the good news for someone. Maybe. So they took uh, the first plane over to see, is this really a good job? Is this for real? But uh, it was a very nice job and it was, I had nice people around me. But during that time, working in Hollywood, you would think, because all I'm looking for is some happiness and seeing, you know, growing up in Sweden, looking at Hollywood movies, you think everyone's so happy there, you know, maybe working in Hollywood, I can find happiness here, right? So... I had uh, great expectations, and, but it wasn't what I thought it would be like. Actually, it would be 
more suffering than I had experienced in Sweden. Because here everything was surface, everything was fake. It's supposed to be like that, of course. And um, the inner suffering, the inner searching got even worse at this time. Uh, because now I was also working in front of the camera and behind the camera. Because, of course, everyone in Hollywood, you get discovered, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was, of course, one like that. And I said, you should... Uh, it was actually um, some uh, director for the uh, Cosby show, a, a famous name who said it. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have, have gone that route, thinking back to it. But uh, I started studying acting and I thought, oh, maybe I can be an actress. I could get happiness, you know, being in the movies. And uh, well, I, hope, I hope you didn't have anything to do with Bill Cosby. No, I didn't. It was Good. another show. Okay, great. Yeah, because he's, pretty, he's pretty notorious these days. No, it wasn't the Cosby show, it, but yeah. he was the director for it. It uh -huh. was another. So uh, I knew him very well. I had great respect for him. And actually, I was watching a a movie star's dog, that was my job, my assignment for the day. I was in guest relation, you do all kinds of jobs. So I was there while she's doing the lines, I was there holding the dog, and one of the actresses was sick. And uh, the uh, producer, the director said, hey, you there with the dog, can you just get up on the set and just say these lines? Because there was a woman that was sick that day. So I just, okay, <laughs> said the lines. And he's the one who said, hey, you're really good. Are you an actress? And I found myself going, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and then I thought, well, if he thinks I'm really good, maybe that is something I can be, you know, fulfilled and, and find happiness. And so that's how I got into that business. But um, doing all the acting classes and film, learning film acting and going for auditions and being in the Hollywood business, uh, it just made my confidence even worse, you know, because now I'm in a category with blue eyed blonde. And either I'm a European or I'm a California. And when I spoke, it wasn't any good because I had too strong accent. And I had managers and agents, you know, the whole thing. They tried to figure out what are we going to do with her? And I said, well, we'll just keep her silent. Can't you be like, we'll have you be like the, the Greta Garbo in the silent movies. You can just sit there and be silent. <laughs> it's when you talk, it's just no good. <laughs> so I thought, well, I have to talk sometime. And um, they sent me to a voice coach and they said, maybe you can be a singer. Maybe you can be a pop singer. <laughs> this is the business of Hollywood. So they sent me to a voice coach and after about 10 lessons. You should have stayed back in Sweden and joined ABBA. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, you should listen to this for the voice coach called my manager after a few sessions, right? And said, maybe you should try something else. <laughs> <laughs> so, so both acting and, uh, and uh, singing, the whole thing was just a failure from, mm. the, from the beginning. But pursuing that and still thinking, I have to do something just to... Find happiness in life. I also found, like Los Angeles, it's like a, a mecca of new age. And uh, everything was there. All the teachers, the workshops, the books. I was always at the Bodhi Tree reading all the books. And I loved it. It was the best place. I thought I'd live here forever and just learning and studying. And I can put up with this business somehow. Uh, so I learned to meditate very nicely. Um, 45 minutes every day, mm -hmm. but uh, the rest of the day was, 
like I said, filled with anxiety, not well, fitting in. What did you learn from the Vedanta Society or? It was a Siddha Yogi. Siddha, Siddha Yoga. Oh, sure, Muktananda. Yes. Right. And uh, I felt. Or Guru Mai. Uh, yes, it was actually the old Guru, Guru Nichananda, that saw a picture of his mm -hmm. and something happened, some kind of a awakening of the heart. It was through the chanting uh, at his ashram and seeing his. his photo. Mm -hmm. And I remember I took all kinds of classes and they had both Jnana Yoga and Bhakti Yoga. And then I heard a video of, of uh, Muktananda and they were speaking, you know, the path through devotion and love is the fastest one. And I thought, oh, because I've tried to figure this out, trying to understand all this for so many years. And uh, going to Jnana Yoga, you know, the knowledge yoga classes just didn't clarify anything. It just didn't give anything, no matter how high your Swami was teaching it, you know, it's just... I'm not getting it. But through the chanting evenings that we did at the center, that's when something started to happen in me. And I thought, I'm probably a bhakta. Mm -hmm. That would be my way. So I pursued that path very intensely. And singing, you know, Om Namah Shivaya and singing all of these uh, sacred chants. And it became part of me. I loved it. So many things happened in those years that prepared me for what, what was to come later. And what I didn't like about it was or I liked but I was looking for more it wasn't fulfilling the whole part of my seeking because 45 minutes every morning I sat and just had a mantra and breathing in and out like that very nice but 23 hours the rest of the day is filled with anxiety all of these things that is happening so I thought it could be the reverse you know I could take 45 minutes of chaos if I can have 23 hours of God mm. <laughs> or that presence, that peace within, you know. So I started looking because in Los Angeles, there's everything, right? So I'm thinking meditation in action. There must be such a course somewhere. So I was looking everywhere. Meditation in action. Somewhere where you can have that niceness where you meditate, but you shouldn't be able to just sit, you know. I can't go in a cave, even though I started thinking that would be my way. That's probably my path to be a monk. And to sit in the cave because I really, really enjoy the meditations. So I was looking for something that would be meditation in action. Like I could have 45 minutes of chaos if I could have 23 hours of peace and of that niceness of that experience of meditation was so profound. I just loved it. Just sitting, breathing in and out you know, repeating a mantra. It was so simple. And I'm going deeper and deeper. But I realized I cannot sit in meditation for the rest of my life, even though I started to contemplate that path. I thought maybe I should be a monk or a nun, and I should sit in a cave and just devote my whole life to this. But then a part of me said, no, we've done that already. You need to be a regular person. I had some kind of strange sense of a past life or something where I oftentimes felt like an old sadhu with a gray, sh you know, like a Shiva with a loincloth. I felt like that. It's like, oh, this is so familiar. This is so home. I could just do this forever. But some part of me pushing me, no, be a regular person, be a normal person and just keep pursuing it. And uh, it was not until I moved back to Sweden, strangely enough, to Helsingborg, where there was the shift that I was longing for many years later. When I lived in California and the city of angels, Los Angeles, I felt 
I just loved it there. You know, all the variety of people. You can really be yourself. If there's a place to, to live, that would be it. And I thought, but I could live anywhere in the world as long as it's not Helsingborg. <laughs> because my memory of Helsingborg, of growing up there, was just so filled with such a deep-rooted anxiety. I could live anywhere but there. And it's so strange that what you resist persists. So that's what happened to me. Destiny had me moving back here. And it was mainly because I had then got married and we had a child. And at that time, there was big riots in Los Angeles and there were weapon detectors in first grade. And I thought, mm, it's time to move. And coming back, missing my parents, uh, who were grandparents then, living in Helsingborg, I felt the heart. It's always the heart that calls you, isn't it? It's, that's what makes the shift. So here we, wait, we went. The family moved here. Coming here to Helsingborg, there was more trauma happening or more drama of my life, you could say. It wasn't over yet. Coming here with a, an American husband and, and realizing that we didn't work here in Sweden and we had grown apart. Mm. And I thought, well, maybe having a child will fix it. So the classic thing that we think sometimes, but we had a daughter, she's born here and um, Unfortunately, the marriage couldn't be saved, so we divorced uh, when she was a baby. So if things were bad before in Helsingborg, <laughs> things got pretty bad at this time. This is probably the worst time in, in a place like this. And also my situation around. And sometimes it has to be like the darkest before the dawn. It was like that for me. I had also, when I gave birth to my daughter, I had received a near-death experience. And that came to have a profound effect even to this day. It was during the birth, during the actual delivery. My husband, he was in the room and I, I had yelled at him. I said, you have to tell me when to breathe. <laughs> He's American, right? So I'm yelling at him because our relationship, you know, I was not at the space where I could fix that. So I was angry and I yelled at him, you have to tell me when to breathe. And so he, he was sitting in the corner saying, breathe in, breathe out, <laughs> breathe in, breathe out. That was his thing. And then I came up with the idea, what if he's not telling the truth? What if when he says breathe in, I should actually breathe out? How do I know he's telling the truth? It was that kind of a logic that came into my head. You know, when you give birth, you don't have that the, the regular logic. So my logic went berserk. So I said, said to myself, well, I'm going to show him. I'm not going to do what he says. And I still to this day remember that. Like I thought it was such a brilliant thought <laughs> that I'm going to like overthink him. I'm not going to breathe at all. That'll show him. It was just that kind of an insight in the moment of the pain, whatever's going on. So I simply just helped my breath just to like outsmart him. This is the stupidest idea I've ever done, but you know, you're not really thinking clear. So as I did that, after some time, I could feel the heart pounding like a hammer to my ribs, you know, dang, dang, dang. And I'm just experiencing this physical sensation and I'm, poof, I'm out of the body. Hmm. 
and I go into this dark tunnel or this darkness of this universe because I could also see stars and things and uh, I was drawn into a light and this experience came to be very profound for me what happened now because there was a big light and this light was alive very brilliant intelligent I can't put words on the magnitude of my experience of being in this light I had of course been seeking this all my life but this was an experience that overtook my whole beingness whatever I was in right now and what happened now was a few light beings, I call them, came out from this light and they were like human, human figures, but there was no hair or skin or anything like that. They just look human. And I knew with every cell in my being that this is another me. This I knew in Lakesh, like the Mayan Indians who I love very much. I am another you. This was, I was startled to see that the beings coming out of the light is another me. And there was three or four of them. And each and one was another you, each of the three yes, or four? Huh. Yes, I can't explain this more than it was a very profound experience that helped me very much in, in later days. Was it like different lifetimes of yours or something that each of these beings represented or what? No, it was the one light coming out as three or four. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I wish I had some profound answer. <laughs> it was just like that. And I remember seeing these three and four tall light beings and they were filled with joy, filled with humor and wisdom. And they came out and said, what are you doing here? It was telepathic communication. And they said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I think I messed up the breathing because I realized <laughs> I was giving birth and I said, I think I did something there. Meanwhile, uh, from the doctor's perspective, had you gone unconscious or something? I had no idea because there was no doctor there. It was just my husband in the corner saying, breathe in, breathe out. Oh, like you mean that. there wasn't a doctor, a midwife or something? No, not in the room at that time. They oh, were, okay. Yeah, that's hospitals in Sweden for you. They're uh -huh. going. Und understaffed. Yes, very much. <laughs> okay. But there was no, no midwife, no doctor there when this happened. But I realized that I'm in some kind of trouble, but I didn't see it as a trouble because I've been seeking the light all the time. And I said, okay, guys, don't worry. I can go in there. It'll be fine. Let me into the light. And they said, no, 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 no. And they showed me a life review of sort. And they made me see that it's not my time. And one of them picked me up. It's like you're in, in some kind of, you're not heavy. You're very like, my experience was, he picked me up like this and he went like that. He set me off like that. And I was like, oh, and that's when I saw I had a silver cord with my belly button mm -hmm. down into earth. So I saw the universe and I saw like the Pleiadian systems or the stars different. It was like, wow, but I was kicked back into the body. And now happened something that really came to change my picture of reality. Because as I'm coming down into the body, I'm also coming in from the inner universe, from the inside light into this gross, big body. You know, the first thing that I hear coming in, so I'm coming from outside and from inside at the same time. The first thing I hear is the, the voice of my then husband saying, breathe in, breathe out. So I'm coming in with, oh no, that kind of a feeling. Oh, and the pain of the you know contractions and everything. So again, 
things happen very fast. And once again, I did the same thing because of this relationship was not healed and I was not okay in, in me and who I was. I held my breath again somehow to show that I just can't do this. For whatever reason I did that, I can't recall. But I did the same thing and I experienced the same thing again. Boom, boom, boom. The heart would like a hammer up in my ribs and I'm out again. Again, the same star system. I was like, and there's no pain when you're out there. You're just like, oh. And again to the light. Now they came out very fast this time. And they're like, oh, you're back again? What are you doing back here? Now they're a little more irritated, right? <laughs> like, we showed you it's not your time. And I go, I know, guys. I had a new strategy. I remember the second time I came, I said, you know what? I know I'm supposed to give birth to a child, but I think I've learned all my lessons. And there's a husband that's sitting there. He can take care of her. And I try to like make some kind of a deal that, but because it, it's just the most amazing thing to be with the light. You know, you just want to get in there. It's like, just let me in. Don't worry about me. I'll be fine. I've learned whatever I'm, I have to learn. Just get me in there. I remember they laughed so much that they turned double like this. But I, <laughs> but I was so serious and I could not understand why they're laughing. Because I had a greatest strategy. I thought I was very intelligent. I had that kind of a mission to get me into this light. But one of them said, okay, I'll walk you down this time. So he walked me all the way down. It was so amazing. And he told me stories all the way down. And then he showed me and told me stories of what I am to do here. He said, it's not your time. What are you talking about? And he shared funny stories and I was laughing. And now this time coming again into the body from inside, from the inner light, stepping into this big. And the first thing I remember hearing the voice, breathe in, breathe out. But I also heard my own voice and my lips. And my lips were like big, like tractors, like huge. I remember thinking, ah, it's such a gross thing, this body. And the, the lips were saying, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. <laughs> Because the light being was there telling me, don't you remember? Don't you remember? I said, oh, I remember. So I came into the body the second time saying, I remember. I remember. And then my daughter is born. Wow. This kind of dramatic birth for her. Yeah. I've shared this with her many times. We talk about it. And I thank her. Thank you for letting me see the light. And I say, well, and you taught me how to breathe. It's like, you got to breathe, mom. You got to breathe. <laughs> don't stop breathing. <laughs> so we have developed a great sense of humor for it. But... Uh, it was a profound experience of discovering what I had learned later. The universe, the light is within you. The light is also outside. So my own experience kind of settled into that many years later. And of course, after the, the birth of, of my daughter, she was put on my stomach and she looked up right away in my eyes. And that moment I'll never forget. It was, I'm looking at God. I knew I'm looking at God in, in, in God's eyes. That was my profound experience. And then memory erased. Memory completely erased. I remember nothing of what I'm here to do or my life review, nothing. But it was a profound experience that came to help me many years later. Uh, life uh, was thrown into being a mother and uh, it didn't work out with this relationship. I was not in a place where I could work things out with him. But we were married to... Uh, 10 years and we had two beautiful children, a son and a daughter. And um, so 
the breakthrough came when I'm now a single mother with uh, two children and my own work. I work as a cranial sacral uh, therapist and I worked at my home. Uh, my home was like a hospital. Uh, there was always somebody feeling bad sitting in the kitchen, you know, because that was the waiting room. <laughs> so that, that's, that's how my children grew up. It's like, oh, okay, there's somebody there. And then they go into the living room and they get help and then they go out the hallway. So it was that kind of circulation of people always. And I had a mission to fulfill. I want to help the world, right? And not the least help myself because I'm filled with misery. And if I could just help people the best I can, maybe I could help too one day. But I was probably one of the most miserable pe people you could find. Hmm. I was uh, afraid of everything. I You're still meditating at that point, I presume? It's very difficult to meditate when you have two, two kids different. and your business and all that. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, it's just, it was, I was not at the point where there was any time for that. I was, every night, I was looking forward to, I can go to sleep tonight. Yeah. You know, that was, that was my joy. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of breathing and then it's just tough, just hard. It was just difficult times. And sometimes it needs to be a little more difficult before you get a shift. And for me, that's, that's how it happened. It was 2002, so it's actually 14 years ago now that my life came to have a dramatic shift, my first dramatic shift, you could say. Um, I was at the lecture here in Helsingborg. It was by an atheist who had uh, was ha holding a spiritual workshop or a lecture, he said. And I thought, oh, I've seen everything in Los Angeles, but not this. <laughs> I got... And I actually threw that paper away, said I'm not going to go to that. I've, I've done everything in Los Angeles. I got to go through life. But no matter what I did, this piece of paper was there. So it's like, maybe I should just go to that and cancel my appointments that night because I always worked. So I rescheduled them and I went. And it came to be a life-turning event for me. This atheist then, he said simply he was had very few words because he was clinically deaf. So he couldn't speak so much. And he said, I'm not a speaker, but I have been to India and um, I'm not a spiritual person. Don't ask me any spiritual question. Ask my big brother. I don't know anything about spiritual things. I'm not interested in that. I just have experienced something that I wish everyone could experience in their own way, like a positive disease. That's pretty much what he said. Like it would be contagious somehow. And he kept touching his heart area. And I felt like this, oh, I want that too. Whatever he had, he's had in the heart. This like, and he doesn't speak much. He doesn't know anything, but he's obviously experienced something. I felt an energy in the body. And it wasn't like he was not particularly charismatic or brilliant in his, you know, saying or anything. It was just something is happening here. And he said, um, I will put some music on and I'll go around. This is before the phenomenon of, of the oneness blessing or oneness diksha, oneness meditation, all of this thing that is, is more known right now. He said, I call this experience healing because you will get the kind of experience that you need. The only thing that you need to do is be grateful before you receive it. He said it very serious like that. And then he put on the music. And uh, he said, so before you get it, just be grateful. And if you can't be grateful, then you have to pretend, he said very seriously. <laughs> I thought, this, this is the weirdest lecture I've ever been to. <laughs> it 
So it was during this lecture then, he, he touched the head of each and every was very lightly. And I've received healing many times. I also give healing in my practice. So healing, I know what that is like. But this was different. When he touched my head just very lightly, there was a presence of uh, intelligence of that strong, if I could say a presence of God, this would be it. This is what I've been looking for all my life. I knew this with every cell of my being. This is it. And I was surprised. I didn't expect that to happen. Especially and from an atheist. I mean, it's no, kind of, kind of <laughs> ironic that this guy's an atheist. I know. This is all completely overtook me. I was not prepared for this. And he had said, you should be grateful. But you never know how you're going to react when you have an experience like that something you've been looking for all your life and here it is you don't know what you're gonna how you're gonna react and what you're gonna feel like and I was unfortunately I was not grateful at all when this happened I was shocked that I was not grateful he had said you have to be great and I wasn't when this happened this here's this presence of this loving witness seeingness and all-encompassing love and intelligence of just seeing and what I know is chakras, different energy points of my body, was looking around in different points and could see everything there. Not just like the nice things about Annette, but all the other things too. And this became very apparent to me, what I'm carrying around. So what happened now was I became so angry. <laughs> I became so furious and directed this anger to this presence, to my big shock that I'm reacting like this. I could not stop this reaction. And I tried everything I could to not be angry. But I was so mad. So directing this anger to their presence, saying, oh, you're coming now, are you? So you'd be surprised how you react when you have an experience of something you've been looking for all your life. You know, this man, he'd been telling, be grateful when you receive this. But I wasn't grateful when this happened. I was so deeply angry. <laughs> and I directed this anger to the presence. Do you think and that maybe this deep experience you had stirred up some deep thing that caused the anger? I mean, or, or maybe not, but maybe you could play with that theory a little bit. Why, why were you angry? What, or, or was there some sudden release as a result of the deep experience that bubbled up as anger? Or was there some other reason for it? I saw that I wasn't only angry, I was also hurt. I was filled with guilt, with sorrow, with uh, all the negative feelings you could have, anxiety, depression, low, like so dry inside. It was every kind of shadow emotion you could have, any kind of emotion that you just don't want. So anger Because you were one. seeing yourself so clearly for the first time. What happened was, as this presence came, which could be seen as a light or whatever it, it was at the time when I first experienced, all of these feelings came up and the anger was the one that on top. So right, it got directed. The strongest, maybe. It got directed there. And I said, why are you coming now? 
don't you know I've been looking for you all my life? You're coming now through an atheist <laughs> in Helsingborg. You know, I've been, I've been looking. You're coming now? So I'm angry. And at the same time, I remember how this man said, you should be grateful. And I, so I tried to push all this down. Like, oh, no, I should be grateful. That's the only thing he said. The only thing you need to be is grateful. And here I am, the most ungrateful, pitiful person sitting on the earth complaining. Like, oh, you're coming now? So I tried to, like, push all of this down. But nothing I did was helping. So more and more of the different anxieties and different horrible feelings started just pouring out of me. And now something happened that came to change my life. Because this presence then got a voice. And I don't hear voices like this. This was a voice that was coming from seemingly outside the whole universe and inside of me at the same time. It was a thundering voice. And if I could say there is a voice of God, then this would be it. Whatever you would call this, it was a voice and it had a clear message to me. And the message came to change my life, what was said here. It said, don't be afraid to meet your inner suffering. Don't be afraid to meet your inner suffering. And as I was sitting in the most inner suffering you could imagine at that time, it was a good, a good advice. So I did, I did what the voice said, just relax, just meet it, just say this is, what's, this is it, right? So I just relaxed about it. And as I did that, I was just met it, confronted it, just this is here. Then the energy of that, the anger, the frustration, the dryness, the hurt, the bitterness, the whatever all that was, like one big mass of something, grayness, it went through the body like a physical sensation I'd never experienced before. It was a physical like flow, like a river through the whole body that I later I learned that's joy. No, I had not experienced that or bliss. Like such strong experience of joy for no reason that it can take a physical sensation like that. And I felt like in my, around my cranium, I felt pressure or certain points and I thought, is he standing there doing something to my head? Is he putting his fingernails inside my head? I had these kind of thoughts of what is, I never experienced anything like this, but he was moving in the other side of the room. So he wasn't doing anything. I just had very dry wood, so to speak. And he just came with it very lightly. Some kind of fusion happened in that meeting. That's all I can say. But the profound thing was, there was a teaching that was given to me from inside. This man had not told me anything. It was given from inside, don't be afraid to meet your inner suffering. And given me this sense of a sacred joy of some sort that eventually died down. You know, you get peak experience, it died down. It, it good enough for me to get home somehow. I remember this was February 2002. And the first thing I did, I came into the apartment was I ran to the computer and I started I think there was Google search then. I was searching on the computer. Anything that this man had talked about, India or something, there was nothing on the internet then, nothing. All I had was this, this deaf man and he's coming back to Helsingborg. He was from another city. He's coming back a week later to have a course. And I signed up to that course because I have to find out everything. He doesn't speak much, whatever he's saying, I gotta write it down because you know, I, I'm a writer, I'm a reader, I'm very like intellectual like that. So I'm, I can't just have this kind of experience of a lifetime and not knowing more about it. I, I need to know what do I do now? So I sat in the front in this course. I think there was only 10 of us. I thought the whole city is going to be there. Everyone has had this kind of 
profound experience, but it wasn't the case. I sat in the front. He looked at me. He was very serious. And he said, you can put down that paper and pen because I was sitting like ready. Whatever he said, I'm just like, I'm going to. <laughs> and I was like, okay. He said, this course is about experience. He said, there's only two things you have to remember. And he said, one, you have to connect with your antriyamen. Your what? Yes, that's what I said. <laughs> your what? <laughs> I had never heard that word before. And so he wrote it on the big board behind us. Antariyamin. It is a Sanskrit word. He's, he's an atheist. He's not a spiritual person. He liked this word. It means the one that dwells within or the indweller. It's a Sanskrit word. And he's like, this is so cool. This is a cool word because it describes what has happened to him. He said, there's something inside. I call it the Antaryaman. He would never call it divine or anything like that. It wouldn't fit in. So he said, get in contact with Antaryaman. However you relate to it, whatever you call it, that's your business. And two, and now he said something that almost made me fall off the chair. He said, don't be afraid to meet your inner suffering. Mm, yeah. So then I felt literally like a white flag from inside of me. Like I'm not in war with life anymore. I have found a path like I give up. The war is over. I found my path because it was given from inside a path that he's obviously found something. And he's saying there's only two things get in connection, get a relationship with this inner self, and don't be afraid to meet the suffering. And so the course was simply about these two things, how to go about doing that on a practical way, because this is a very practical farmer, you know, and, and I said, how do, how do you uh, meet suffering? How do you do that? <laughs> the classic question. And here is this man, right? <laughs> he, said, he said, go buy an egg timer, which I did. And he said, next time you're in some kind of uncomfortableness or suffering, suffering is a big word. He said, start with something little, you're uncomfortable, you don't like about whatever is experienced. When you come home at night, you set the egg timer. And just like when you boil eggs, you just sit and boil in the feeling until the timer is ring. Then you can do other things. But during the time when you have the timer on, then you just experience whatever is you are trying to run away from. So this it's his own way that worked for him, and I did this. I had no one to help me or coach me in this path but him. So for a year and a half, um, that was the only thing I did. Developing a relationship with that Antiryaman in my way. And then also learning to stay with what I am running away from. So these two things together, I discovered, uh, was the magic key. If you only sit and experience an awareness of what is difficult, that is not getting you necessarily into the transformation. And only praying to the divine or having a relationship with the divine, which I've been doing all my life, that wasn't, that wasn't doing it for me. Here the divine presence came in and gave a teaching, listen, you got to know what to do when you're with me. It's that kind of a thing. So I felt the divine gave me that. I got to do, you know, he didn't say, go tell your mother about this, you know, go tell the world about this. He said, don't be afraid to meet your inner suffering. So I took this upon me very serious. I did not speak ab about this to anyone. 
I just did these two things for a year and a half before I first time went down to India. And already I could see that my life started to change because I did this inner process. These two things together was the magic key in relation to the divine, what I call divine, but my friend who introduced it would not call it that. It's, it's very also important to me that this was a path where you can keep this to yourself. You could be anonymous. You can call it anything you want. You can call it divine or you can call it antriyaman or you could be an atheist. You could be Christian. You could be Buddhist, anything. The important thing is your experience and what you do with it. So did he provide some kind of technique or method to get in touch with this antriyaman or how did he expect you to do that? Yes, it was on the course. And this uh, still also, we um, call it, it, it uh, is also stayed with me how I also teach. And see, a person who has found Antriyaman himself, you find like a, a secret way in to this field, what I know is a unified field of consciousness. You can call it whatever you want. He had a very strong, definite experience of that presence within. So in his course, he did the same thing that they had done down in India. In the very, this is before the temple and all this magic happened down there. It was just in the low-cut jungle and in some huts. And the monks and nuns down there, they prayed for the participant. In other words, praying is you go to the inside. You know, of course, my friend wouldn't call it pray. He said, I'm going to talk to my, my Antriyaman and ask Please give this to everyone here. Because when I try to do something in life, whatever it's healing or anything else, nothing happens. You know, I only get problems. I don't want to be involved in all this. So he simply had us lie down on, on mats and he talked to his antriyaman. May please help these people. They, they want to have this kind of experience. So that's what he said. Funny this guy calls himself an atheist because it sounds like he's communing with something that he considers to be intelligent and responsive and, and yet non-material and transcendental or something. He has a strange definition of the word atheism, <laughs> it seems to me. <laughs> it's beautiful. I love it. You know, we're, we're free to call this whatever we like and call ourselves whatever we like as long as we become happy. It's really about that. You know, a happy person can never hurt another. So whatever we call ourselves or how we relate to this, it's, it's really, it's personal. Mm -hmm. Sometimes Buddhists are referred to as atheists, and yet they have a, obviously a connection with this, this sort of field of whatever you want to call it, but they just choose not to attribute any kind of um, divinity or uh, intelligence, I guess, even to it. Mm -hmm. So after doing this process very intensely, I started with, like this man who was deaf, he shared from his own experience. I started with something simple, he said, because being deaf, it's kind of embarrassing. Sometimes I end up in a situation and I feel embarrassed about it. So my first suffering was feeling embarrassed. And I was also like that. I was embarrassed about everything in my life. <laughs> so I started pursuing those things that was difficult for me to do. And just staying with it, setting the egg timer, just feeling embarrassed until the, the clock ring. The, the thing that he said was the key to this, he said, is you have to do it every day. You know? And later, much later, I learned about neuroscience and the, the wiring of our brain and to break a habit, you have to do it regularly. So all these things I learned 
much later. But that's how I started, just picking up because his, the profoundness of, of his state, that he's, he's just giving very simple, practical things to do. So every day I sat, or every evening I sat with the egg timer. And eventually my brain got used to this, doing it for a year and a half. I got so used to not running away from that which is called suffering, but to actually confront it or embrace it or just seeing it. And that which is the non-dual way, you know, that I, I learned afterwards. It's like, oh, that's so cool. You know, I just kind of got into it in the, in the, through awareness, you know, learning it from this, in the simplicity of this way. There were some things, though, that was still difficult for me to be just in awareness of being with. And I heard of this course in India called Samskara Shuddhi. Samskara, that is your past lives. Shuddhi is cleansing. So there could be some past life things that is still bothering me or something. So I went down to India my first time in August 2003. And that's when I had um, the profound experience uh, number two. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> the first one was definitely in here in Helsingborg where that inner voice came that, that changed my life. But the presence that I had got to know was more like a the volume of a radio channel, you know, it's like sometimes it would be very like re I could really feel this presence and sometimes it would be like, I guess it's there, but it wasn't so clear. But that came to change in August. I took a course, it was a three day course with the monks or the dasas down there that guided, you know, how to meet the different kind of shadow energies and invoke the presence of your divine into it and not resist it. And it was nice to do it in a group and not have the option of running away with your thoughts and things like that. So it was very strong, very powerful. And I felt like I had taken a shower from the inside. It was that kind of a feeling. It was actually so amazing that I thought I'll stay here forever. You know, I didn't, I just didn't want to leave. It was just an amazing experience. But we were also to have a a darshan, a meeting with the founder of the Oneness University, one of the founders, there's two founders, and he had been Sri Bhagavan, he had been in silence for three months at that time, and he was having a darshan for the first time. And I went in there with a group of uh, Russians, there was 30 Russians and me. We were told we could uh, ask questions or something like that, and it was at this darshan that he he shared with the group. He said, humanity has been preparing itself for a, a shift in consciousness that will start happening after 2012. And here from the Oneness University, we will contribute in this shift in consciousness by giving an energy transfer we call Diksha. I had never heard of this before, ever. And he said, we'll start on Sunday. You should all come. You know, you could have like a transformation in consciousness. There are different doorways of consciousness that you could go in and, and have an experience of and something could happen to you. So of course my plane ticket back home was on the on that day, 17th of August. But I was gonna make this big day when the first diksha was given to the to the odd the regular people. And word spread fast. And people came from all over and you know how it is in India. I believe they said it was about 150,000 people there that day. Wow. Yeah. So they were at the, this ashram called Neymam. And they took in, it was very beautifully organized. It was like 10,000 people at a time, like a big rock concert thing with fences. So you, don't, you didn't feel squished or anything. It was really nicely organized. I was really impressed by that. 
And uh, coming in there, the, the dasas, they walked around to different sections and put their hands on our head. Dasas are? The dasas are monks and nuns that work at the Oneness University as teachers. Right. And this first diksha was to be given through them to us. And I had this thing of always having male teachers all my life and male masters, you know, like starting with Jesus, you know, and then talking to God, the Father in heaven, all of this. I was so happy that in this path, there was an Amma sitting next to Bhagavan. They were holding this together. This is what I knew I was looking for. I've, for a while, I thought it was the Siddha Yogi path because as Muktananda left his body, there was actually two people joining together, holding that. But then that movement kind of split up and I split with that because inside I felt I want both the divine mother, divine father, divine female, divine male to be together. That has been something that I've been carrying in my heart all this time. So I was so sad when the Siddha movement kind of didn't go that for me. They did beautiful things. Both of them did beautiful things, but they didn't do it together. And for me, I needed them to be together. Mm. So in this path, there was both an Amma and a Bhagavan holding this phenomenon of bringing this in. And in my head, when we received this Diksha, it was so important to have the female a little bit more. Like, I want a female Dasa to give this whatever this is, Diksha, I don't know what this is, whatever it is, it must be from a female daughter, one of the nuns. I just, it has to be because I've had too much male all my life influences. I need more of the feminine. So I prayed, I learned to pray and talk to my divine. So I talked to my divine, I said, have the female daughter. And I looked in, the, in my section where I was sitting was a male daughter. I was a male guide, you know, going down and giving this very powerful energy transfer. And, um, I remember feeling like so that disappointment, <laughs> feeling that like, oh, I'm remembering my friend, the atheist back home saying, you know, you should be grateful, really. So I said, I should be grateful. I shouldn't sit here complaining. I want, but I want the female. I want female. I don't want the male. And I started having this conflict again. <laughs> and then I know, what can I do about the conflict? Nothing. I had to just like... This is happening. It's like, oh no, not now. I want to be like in this beautiful state receiving this wonderful diksha. But I was like in the innermost conflict again as this is happening. And right before he's coming to my head, there's two female dasas running over to me. I could see and feel their shawls sweeping around me like this. And one of them pressed down her, her hands on my head, like really. like. Huh. And I was so taken by this experience. I couldn't believe it. I got heard from my divine the last second. It was like the last second. She just like, poof, I got you. Pretty cool. And that was a cool experience. And the same experience happened that did in Helsingborg. This inner presence. But now it was experienced more like a golden ball of liquid light. That's all I can explain. It's, it was like she went, bloop. It felt like liquid light just like, whoosh, and expanded in my head. It went down by itself in my throat. I'm busy just feeling like in awe like because i was you know busy with the anger and disappointment and then oh, so i just see how all of this is happening and it goes into my chest area and it expands and it goes into my stomach and that's when it landed like a huge 
golden basketball, you know, of something. And it was so filling some kind of sweetness, like honey or nectar, I could feel like it was so, I saw that I've been carrying like a dark hole in my stomach, like a black hole mm. in my stomach, you know, just trying to fill it with something, just that has been the issue somehow. And that together with my brain is now used to not running away from suffering, not running away from that, which I don't want to have there, but just like, oh, well, this is what we have to experience now, whatever the moment brings you. So a combination perhaps of not resisting the now and the, the gift of grace that happened to me that day made a shift in consciousness, a profound shift in consciousness this time. Uh, there was a lot of noise happening there around that. Like it always does in India with 150,000 people. <laughs> there were speakers, you know. You have to leave the area. Everyone has to come out, you know. And uh, I could move. I was again filled with this this uh, bliss. And I thought the Russians, because I was with the Russians, I don't understand any Russian, but they always like adopted me and they kind of pulled at me like, Nitty Nitty, we have to go. Uh, so I figured the Russians will save me. The Russians will take me from here. <laughs> I'll just sit here, you know. I can't move. And I looked up after a while and all the people in my section, they couldn't get out because there was some kind of problem. And they said, sit down, you will receive it one more time in this section. I said, oh, cool, I get it one more time. And, and this time, I didn't care if it was a male or female. I, you know, I was like, well, you know, just whatever is happening. And this time it was a male, that's a male monk that gave this very uh, beautiful. And the same thing happened again, golden liquid light coming in, whew, filling the head and now doing something more in the left brain it seemed to be having his own intelligence, whatever it's, it's doing. And then sure enough, after this, after some time, there was a Russian woman tugging at my arm saying, Nitty, Nitty, share a taxi to airport. So I, I actually, from there, went straight back home to Sweden. Mm. Kind of a dramatic exit from India, but uh, it was when I came home then I realized something is very different now than from before I left. Even though I had started this process before, there was uh, energy shooting up my spine, uh, electric. I was feeling so happy. I have never been so happy in my life. I actually didn't know how to function. I just fell in love with my family. I couldn't speak of, there was nothing to talk about. It was just like falling in love with everyone. My daughter was then eight years old and, you know, I had missed all her baby years, you know, because I was so miserable and trying to help this world, you know. And it, it was like, ah, oh, she's so beautiful. And we just connected like that. And um, it was so difficult to see myself, like how, how can life work now on a practical level? So I actually remember I went to the doctor and I said, um, you know, I feel so happy that I don't know how to live my life. <laughs> you wanted a pill for that? <laughs> yeah, I wanted because I got serious, like I can't stress, you know, stress is not having an effect because to make schedule and, you know, having all this, the kind of work I had, you need to have some kind of quicker energy and here I'm just I could lie on a carpet and I'm just going into that what I remember from my childhood with the the sound and the pajamas you know that how can I book clients so the doctor looked at me because I thought he must he must have some kind of suggestion what can I do now because there's something he looked at me and he sent me to a psychologist <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, go see her, <laughs> it will be fine. So uh, I went to the psychologist, I explained the whole thing again, what had happened to me, and after an hour, she also wanted to go to India. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> and she said, you know what, I'm going to put you on sick leave for five weeks. I'm sure you have got used to this by then. So I got sick pay for five weeks. It was a, a second gift of grace that I actually yeah. got this time after this very big change in my body system. Only in and, Sweden could you get something like that. Yes, <laughs> at that time at least. Right. Today, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, it's, things change. But it was a grace that I could have that time with my family and just get used to. And then I started taking my clients and, um, and booking. And it was actually the, the clients that started saying, you're so different now than when you were before. You know, what happened to you in India? And I don't want to take their whole hour to speak of my experience because it's expensive to go an hour to craniosacral. I don't want to take your time and your money for that. So I'll have uh, in my living room on Sunday, I'll have what, what I learned is satsang, which simply means you share your truth. I'm a very shy person. I know that, but a satsang, I'm sure I can just say to a few people who are interested. So I thought 10 people could come and just listen. I can share it. Those people, my clients that were interested, they could come. Now, a friend of mine had a big website and he put it on his website. Annette will share her experience from India. And <laughs> that day, that Sunday, 90 people show up at my door. And you don't Nine. have room in your living room for 90 no, people. I, it was completely taken again by storm, by shock. I said, what do we, what do, we do? What is happening? People just keep pouring in. And um, the people from Denmark, from Copenhagen, they had a film camera and it's like, oh, what is going on? I was just going to tell a few people. So someone said, there's a hall around this neighborhood where we can go in and just be where we can all fit. So they knew like a community place. So we went there and they put me on top of a table because they all wanted to see. So I got this experience the first time in my life on camera then. And I knew from Hollywood that I'm not good on camera. That's so in my voice, the microphone is like, oh, I've been told I can't speak, be silent. You know, this is not working. So all of the memories from the Hollywood, the trauma, you know, that came up. And also knowing that I can't speak. I've, I've taken many classes trying to look people in the eye. I can only look one person in the eye. Maybe it doesn't work otherwise. Now there's 90 people sitting there and they put me on the table so they could all see. And. On top of it, I was supposed to speak of the most sacred, most profound personal experience I've ever experienced like this. Oftentimes when we have a shift of some kind, we get tested. So this was like, for me, the biggest nightmare you could ever have happen. Big night nightmare like this. And what did I have? I had my divine. I had my antriamen. And I've, I said, what do I do now? What do I do? I have nothing to say. What can I? I have never been able to look more than two people in the eye and my divine said very clearly stay with the what is stay with what is there experience whatever is you're experiencing i'm there so there's no shortcut it's just sitting there experiencing whatever is going on and the willingness to experience whatever that is that's all that's needed just the willingness to experience it there was nothing happening all the years of anxiety was more like old photographs, like right? Yes, that is part of Annette's personality, like a toolbox with different tools, like different aspects, like Annette is this and this and this. 
But it's like a bigger part of me was holding the smaller part, saying, we'll take some of this, a little bit of humor, and oh, she loves to sing. She Maybe I can't sing, but I love to do it. And it didn't matter. So I sat there on the table and I started just singing because I love to sing. And now it didn't matter that I can't sing, right? And I thought they are all going to throw tomatoes at me. I was absolutely <laughs> certain because I had such strong charges around, you can't sing. But nobody left. Nobody threw anything. They all stayed. And I went around and gave this experience healing at the time. I said, I, I just hope, and I had my friend who had introduced this to me, he was there too, uh, where you gave this energy transfer or just a wish, like a positive disease. Let it just be contagious somehow. I don't know what this is. Had you been trained to give Diksha at that point? No, no, no. So you Only just kind of did your best to figure it out? I, I did what, like he said, he yeah. had trained me. He said, you talk to your... Antriyaman. It's not up to you. It's up to your Antriyaman. So I did that. I talked to my Antriyaman. Antriyaman said, let's just do that. What, do we, what else are we going to do? You know, I shared a little bit about my process there in India, sang a little song, and then I said, I'm just going to give you experience healing with my friend. So we walked around do, doing this thing, you know, and then I thought it's over, but no. The people from Copenhagen that was filming, they said, come to Copenhagen, have a satsang there. I said, oh. So from then on, going to Copenhagen, there was people from Berlin. They said, oh, you come to Berlin. And there were people. So this unexpected journey around the world happened that I wasn't seeking. I just was told to come to this place from one place to another to just share my experience. And I was comfortable enough to call it satsang because that's all I could do. I could just share what is going on in the most strange places I would be invited. <laughs> Around the world, this phenomenon happened on its own and it's still going on. Going where the heart is calling. So at a certain point you got more formal training, right, in India yes. to be a, a Diksha giver and all that? Yes. Yeah. And the, the phenomenon of giving it is you're trained like that, you know, you get initiation mm -hmm. and you're also trained very clearly that it's, it's from your inner divine self or your antriyaman, they use that word, antriyaman, because you should be free to relate to it in your own way. So it was, that's how it's given. It's uh, none of us giving it, it's, it's that presence within. Right, you're just a, a channel or a tool yeah. or instrument. Definitely. Yeah. So the deaf guy, had he actually been to the Oneness University place? And that's why he was using the Antriyaman yes. word. But yes. in, at that stage, it was in a very preliminary. Yes, stage it was in the very, very beginning of this. Yeah. Huh. So maybe this would be a good time for you to explain. Well, you, you've sort of explained it just now, but um, what is actually happening when you, when you give Diksha? Why does it work and how does it work? You get connected into that unified field of consciousness. We can call the supreme light or the superconscious, whatever you want to call it, depending on you. There's only one to my own understanding, my own experience. There's only one. And as we each find our own way into connecting into this unified field, 
we can help to awaken it in another. It's not that you're giving something because it's already there within the other and they relate to it in their own way. So we don't know as a giving this, we don't know, it's not up to us. But we can wish good things for people and we can give this energy transfer and it's up to them and their antriyamen, their higher sacred self, what they do. It's like sending an email, right? Here's some good news. You can open it or not. Use it the way it fits you. That is my understanding, my experience of it. So I don't get involved with being like hearing, did it work or not? It's not up to me. I know it worked for me. Yeah. <laughs> so when you study at Oneness University, do they give you training or methods to more effectively and reliably and clearly connect with the unified field or whatever you want to call it? Yes, very clear teachings. I am totally amazed at these, the dasars, the monks and nuns, they have dedicated their lives to helping in this process. They're amazing. That was one of the things that really took me by storm when I went there, because it wasn't just like the founders were in a great state of consciousness, of course, but all of their monks and nuns are also in super states. We're having that presence of something so kind, so loving in their eyes, so intelligent. And the way they teach, the amazing thing I have found over the years, because it's 14 years now, I keep growing. Sure. It's not like, oh yeah, I made some kind of a shift. Yeah, there was a big shift happening at that time, but that wasn't the only shift. That was just one big shift that happened. It keeps growing and growing. And these guides, we call them guides or, or dasas or monks or nuns, whatever you want to call them, they have dedicated their lives to the phenomenon of awakening each person in their own way and to help this world in that way through evolution of consciousness. Are they really monks and nuns, like they're living the monastic life? Because, I mean, with the Osho group, for instance, they called themselves sadhus, I believe, uh, but they weren't really sadhus. <laughs> they were just sort of people using that name. But these, these people are really monks and nuns? What I know, yes, they live together. So they don't have household, they don't have families, they're not married. You know, so they live the kind of life of service. Right. So but they're not monks on the traditional form, like they have to do austere things. and, no, and but they're living celibate lives. And... Yes. They wouldn't have time <laughs> for <Right>. anything. <laughs> Now questions are starting to come to me. You, you've been. I've, this is probably the the least I have talked in any interview that I've ever done. But because you're so, you're, you're actually a very good talker, and you're telling the story so <laughs> with such great interest. But now I'm starting to get some questions. Well, a couple of questions. One is, is there a difference in capability among diksha givers, depend, depending on how clear and deep they are? Maybe some are you know, sort of 10% and some are 80% <laughs> or whatever in terms of the, their ability to, to mm. transmit. And also I would imagine there must be similar differences among those who receive Diksha in terms of their receptivity and, and openness to it. Yes, it, it said that there are three components in giving and receiving a Diksha. So it is the giver, mm -hmm. it is the receiver, and it's the Diksha itself. So the actual diksha or the energy transfer has um, the most power of the three. So if the diksha has a mission, like the divine wants something for someone else, let's say it's someone 
like when you give a diksha, if you were to not feel so good as a giver, let's say you have a bad day, it's just you're in some kind of mood and you're going to give a diksha to someone. Maybe that's not like the optimal, the best way to be when you give a diksha is in a state of gratitude. That's the highest state you can be in. But maybe you're not able to feel grateful and somebody's asking you for diksha. What do you do? Well, what is happening then is the diksha is like a faucet, you know, turning on. So what happens is you as the giver feel really good. You know, a little less comes to the one who is asking. So it's a good idea for the other person to be as clear channel as possible. Otherwise, all this diksha goes to you as the giver, right? But if the diksha itself has a mission, like it's some kind of time for the gift of grace to be given to this person, it doesn't matter if this giver is absorbed in some other kind of thing, it will still work because the diksha has priority. It is sovereign. Yeah. I understand that. I mean, I used to teach transcendental meditation many years ago, and sometimes I would teach somebody, and all of a sudden I would have this you know, incredibly profound experience while I was teaching them, and I wouldn't necessarily be in any very clear state that day or anything, but all of a sudden it would just be like, <laughs> boom, you know? And then I'd talk to them afterwards, and they would have had the same experience. So I figured, oh, it must be that this person was really ready, and, I, and somehow whatever the mechanics are on a subtle level of this process, you know, we both got uplifted by it because of their deservability, or, you know, their readiness. Mm, yes. Yeah. So what is the scene like over there? I mean, it sounds like it's a really big place, and there are a lot of people, and there are Maybe, I don't know, give, give us numbers. It's like, how many people are there at any one time? How many of these dasas are there? How much does it cost to go there? I mean, if one wanted to get involved in this and start going there, what, what are they going to find when they go there? So there are different ways to go there. Mm -hmm. First of all, one interesting point is uh, the oneness temple. It is a magic, like you said, it's like a magic fairy tale place. Mm -hmm. um, it's like... So I've seen wonderful. pictures of it. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, you told me when, when we started talking, like even the Wanda's Temple looks like a fairy tale place. And it's, yeah. that's it's exactly like, how I feel. It looks like the Wizard of Oz kingdom or <laughs> yes, yes. Disneyland or something. <laughs> that's how I feel. Like, wow. It's like candy for the eyes. You yeah. know, the eyes go, oh, because it's in the middle of a low cut jungle. Mm -hmm. So there it is in white marble. Everything is made from white marble carved out elephants and lions and horses and just magical staircases spiraling up and it's like this magic place so you just want to go there and it's built like a structure like the pyramid is built in a way called vastu you know knowledge of how mm -hmm. a building can affect your consciousness yes so it's built with that knowledge together with it's a danish architecture company that has designed it so it's very like modern very hip very cool place and it's the largest hall in Asia, the third floor, you can sit without pillar. So you can sit like 12,000 people on the third floor meditating with no pillars. Wow. And it's like this cool, like in Sweden, we have the lighting is very important because it's so dark here. We have Ikea here. So we have Ikea lighting. I always think of, oh, I'm going into the Swedish home. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone else agrees with me on this, but, <laughs> but I feel very at home. Uh, because it has all these lights, you know, the cool lights from the ceiling. So it's like a magic temple because of the lighting. And inside the floor, there's these flowers that you can sit on the flower. And there is the Sri Yantra. It's uh, like a, 
a figure, a sacred symbol in the center. That is like the power where eight different power place uh, lines meet at the same time. So the actual center of the temple is uh, like a yantra, like an energy structure. So you sit there and you feel just like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm like home. This is a really nice place to be. And in this temple, there have been over the years, it was built, it was took seven years to build. It was built uh, 2008 in uh, April, I believe, for the opening. And they wanted to have it then like a oneness temple. But they had some problems having it as a oneness temple because there's no nomination of religious things. So they actually have to sort this out somehow of it being a temple for oneness, a temple for all, for everyone. So maybe soon it will be released from to, to the public. But so far you have to take a course or be involved somehow at the Oneness University because it's set up like that from the government and the political situation, religious structure. Just to explain a little bit what's going on because it's not like an ashram, like other sacred places you can go and visit just freely like that. They have to actually pay taxes like a, a business. They have to run it like a business until the laws in India change. So it can be a spiritual place because that's what it is. But so they have worked around this to make it affordable for people. And they have something called Shambhala. And Shambhala is a mystical vision of a place, you know, in another dimension. I think it's in, from the Buddhist tradition or um, a, a sign of coming of the light. They call the temple now the Shambhala, and then you can go for like a one-day course. Uh, and it's very low cost to go to this. If you only want to go to the temple, you can join in then into the Shambhala, where you simply just pay for the food and the, the shelter or living there. Uh, so the cost is as low as possible, and you can stay for just a few days. If you just want to go there and experience the temple, you go to the temple every night and you journey with one of the dasas. So you learn how to relate to that antriyaman inside. You learn from that dasa, a female or a male, like their way, because we all have different ways. So they're just teaching us our way, uh, their way. And so each, just, each dasa has a slightly different way of doing it? Yeah, they have their own personality, their own, you know, they're not the same. Oneness is not sameness. So they're very different. But they are all connected into that unified field. And it's so cool to take classes with different dances to say, oh, this is how they do something. Pick some. up different things. Yeah, yeah. just like very subtle things. How but many of I, them are there? I think there is about 100 or so. But uh -huh. there are certain that are only working with us Westerners who are used to us Westerners. There's also them, those who only work with Indians and traveling around. They do lots of work, like volunteer work, helping 100 villages around, giving them food and shelter, schools and hospitals. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of work happening uh, around the temple that we're not really seeing. What perhaps. part of India is this? You fly into Chennai, mm -hmm. so it's, uh, and then it's three hours, about two, three hours with taxi up the north. Okay, so Chennai is on the east coast, south yes, India. South, southeast right. coast. Right. Okay. Yes, it's in a nature reserved area. And most people who would come here obviously wouldn't just come for one day. I mean, most people listening to this would be flying in from US or Europe or Australia yes. or something. And so I imagine they have longer programs for a week, a month, whatever. Yes. Actually, they, they suggest stay for at least a week. Yeah. You know, you don't go to India for a day. No. <laughs> <laughs> so you stay for a week at the Shambhala. That's like the lowest, most economical, if that is your 
situation where you have to um, yeah. consider that. Then they have longer courses. So they have three-week courses, mm -hmm. journey courses. That is also uh, extraordinary. Then it's more of a process. So it starts like a beginning and an end. You know, these Shambhala is one-day courses. So you travel that day with a dasa, and then it's your new dasa next day and so forth. But on the journey courses, it's one journey for three weeks. Mm -hmm. So it's a different kind of system in that, in the teachings and the experiences that you get. You go a little deeper. And um, then they have lots of other types of courses also. Mm -hmm. And Bhagavan and Ama are designing all this. They're overseeing the whole thing ultimately, huh? Yes, they are. They are the founders. Right. They started this and uh, they retired 2014. They mm -hmm. said, "This we, we came here with this mission to help humanity, to create such a structure, a building that could stay for at least a thousand years mm -hmm. without being damaged by the weather and wind and all this. And the structure would have hold the presence of light, the golden light that is a symbol then that I experienced coming into that. A golden light could be a symbol of just seeingness. You know, so you put light on something, you see it. So they want the divine to be housed into that temple. So when you go in there, you will have an experience. But they still, of course, oversee it and have their part. But they're not so much out in public as they don't want this to be like a, a guru phenomenon. Right. I heard an interview with him one time and he spoke very clear English. And it was I really liked the things he was saying. It really, there's a lot of wisdom in it. Um, yeah. So it's... Uh, I mean, India has a reputation for being kind of rough, and the food—you know—you can get easily get sick when you go there, and so on. But this place is pretty um, comfortable for Westerners. Yes, um, it's extraordinary the things that have happened since I first came there, uh, 2003. We didn't even have beds at that time. It was so simple, you know. We're just like little huts with mm -hmm. banana leaves roofs, you mm -hmm. know. And I was with the Russians. I was just sleeping on the towel on the, this mud floor. So it was so simple, rustic, but I loved it. You know, for me, it was like perfect. I felt really, yeah. you know, like a spiritual seeker, like a sadhu, you know, because I, I read all those books. Yeah. And I, I, would, I would love that. But also realizing, coming back to Sweden, uh, seeing that people would want to experience that, they have developed this very nice campuses around so that you could have the comfort of a Westerner that is used to the nice toilets, of course, beds. They even have like a five-star hotel Nearby. Part also campus, yes. Mm. So also it's part of the Oneness University where Sri Yama and Bhagavan actually lived themselves. So after that, they moved into the temple, but that campus is very nice. And they made it into a campus where you can stay and they call it Campus 3 or Ananda Loka or something. I don't know what they call it. They have different names, but it's one of the my favorite campus to go to. It's filled with peace. But all the campuses are like that. There are five, six, seven around them. Oh, are all the campuses in a cluster near each other or are they different parts of India? No, no, they're around the, the same area. I see. Um, so but slightly. like Campus 3, they're at the foothill of sacred mountains where old Siddhas are said to be, where you mm -hmm. can have many great mystical experiences. That's maybe why I love it so much, mm. because you can actually communicate with these Siddhas that are dwelling, like could be 10,000 years old. Mm. And not, you, not in, the, in the flesh communicate, but on a subtle level. On the mystical level, right. yes. But they can also appear if, if it doesn't freak you out. They, they can do those things too. They dwell up there. And there is a, uh, there is a, a mountain campus called the Sacred 
sacred forest campus. There we are just for a day. And the indigenous people who live there, they when they met Sri Yama Bhagavan, they said, we want to build a campus here. And they said, oh, do you come with the light-skinned people? Because they had heard this in the generation that when the, when the light-skinned people come, then the world will start its awakening. Oh, nice. So that's very cool. So that is an awesome place that we go to visit. We don't stay there. Energy, it's like you can talk to the ants, you can talk to the tree. There are mystical things happening there that is just like a fairy tale. Hmm. So That's great. I, I know that over in, in the Oneness University, people are sort of proclaimed awake. Like, okay, you've had your awakening and so on. And, um, you know, let's talk about what you guys actually mean by that. And to start with that, someone named Dee from Denver sent in a question. Maybe this will get you going. She said, when your mind is engrossed in something, say a good book or adding figures, are you simultaneously aware of the divine? For instance, I might ask you, would that be one of your criteria of what awakening is? That awareness of the divine or some kind of self-realized state persists no matter what you're doing, even if you're engaged in reading a book or driving a car or adding figures mm. or fast asleep for that matter. <laughs> it is an experience. I can only speak for myself now. I don't know what the criteria are. I can answer it in two ways. I can answer it the way that I know, because you also asked, how do you know if you're awakened, mm -hmm. right? And then I can answer from yeah. my own experience. How, how, is, how does the oneness group define awakening? And, okay. And, yeah. Because we'll start there. Okay. What some of the dasas are highly trained, developed in their consciousness that they can go into, I would call it like a Google search, but on the divine level. Mm -hmm. They can go into someone's brain or their collective consciousness. And if they have your name, and your birth number when you were born, there's some, some information about you. What they do is five of these dasas goes into five different dark rooms. They are trained to go into the divine field of consciousness, like an advanced Google search, I would say, and asking, this person, is this person awakened? If they are, on what level? And if all five come out with the same answer, then that's it. Hmm, that's Otherwise. So that's how we are proclaimed awaken on one on what level. Do they do and that a lot for people? I mean, if you think you're awakened, you, you talk to the dashas and say, hey, would you check for me? Or? They only, they did in the beginning mm -hmm. and all, they got over. Overwhelmed. <laughs> overwhelmed with my emails. Yeah. <laughs> then they had to stop that because they would use these five dashas too much, you know, and they yeah. said, we only do it now for people who take the three-week course then you get declared awaken and on what level and this level is only for you to understand and to be uh, to be growing to see where you're at and what's the difference between being on the lower level of awakening what's happened when you go into the awakening building it's like you're there's an uh, awakening building <laughs> this is my <laughs> this is my explanation now i came <laughs> very quickly into my way of 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 explaining it or understanding it. It is like, <laughs> there's no an actual awakening building, even though I would say the temple could be such a... So it's kind of a metaphor. <laughs> yeah, it's a metaphor, that's I what see. it is. Thank you, thank you for helping this sweet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My way of looking at it is, when you're not awakened, 
you look at the world a certain way. Like something is bothering you, it's in your face because that's how you see things. When you go, go into awakening, it's like you go into a building and you're, let's say you're awakened on level one or two, you like go up to that level and you look at the same reality from that second, second point uh, when level. Second then floor. This, yes, second floor. So then it looks like that, a little different now. You have a different perception of the same thing. Still, it's bothering you. You're not, you know, but you're awakened, but you're on this level. So then let's say you, you move up because you get trained of not resisting the what is. You, you get trained and your brain is actually changing and you, you learn these things and you have processes for that. And then you go into a higher level. And to go really quick then, what is the difference between like a, a Buddha or a Ramana Maharishi or somebody who is really big state of consciousness and somebody who is just like starting this process would be that that would be like on the hundredth floor. Let's say a hundredth floor is the top floor in this metaphor. Mm -hmm. So he is, the Buddha is resisting nothing. Okay, nothing of the mind he is resisting. Those of us who are not on the hundred, we might have resistance to some things and we are growing and we're learning. But we're in the building or in the process of continuing. The neurobiological shift has happened. We perceive reality. We have not changed reality, but we perceive reality in a different way. That is the awakening process from my own understanding and experience. Mm -hmm. That's a good explanation. Um, does the Oneness University, I guess that's what you call it, is that the best way to refer to it? The Oneness Group or whatever you call it? <laughs> Oneness must... University is, it is a university. It is a university for consciousness. Yeah. So, a school for growing in consciousness, you can call it that, or the Oneness Temple. Words are not really important. If it makes problem for people, then you can call it something else. I just want to, yeah, I want to refer to it correctly. But yes. does does the group um, or does the teaching kind of have a fairly clearly defined explanation of how many levels there are? Like they might say seven levels or 15 levels or something like that. And when the Dasas say, okay, well, this person is awakened, would they actually be so specific as to say, oh, they're at level four? Or mm -hmm. is it a little bit more fuzzy than that? They don't put much emphasis on this. Uh, when they first started giving awakening levels, it was to ha simply explain this. Like you can grow into this. This shift has happened in you, you can grow, it's for your own good. But it started a lot of conflict around people and they said, let's just forget this awakening levels because it's just creating problems for you. Let's forget it. But yeah. yes, complicating. And then people said, no, we want to know if we have grown or not, you know. So then they started it again and then they moved it. And one course, I remember said, all of a sudden they said, no, we're not going to give it. Said, it doesn't matter, you know, yeah. but some people get upset. So it just doesn't really matter. They give uh, a level just for our understanding, like a metaphor. You know, they can see if if that much of your brain has changed. So if you're on a 20 or a 30, I think they have from zero to 100. Okay. So if you're on a 20 to 30, your presence, your very presence can change your room. Some Some kind of explanation like that I heard in the beginning. Now, they don't like to go into that because people then, someone on the 19 go, oh, I don't change your room, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's just that you don't, what is happening real practically is you don't have um, a, a problem with what is happening around you. You don't resist. It has to do with how much resistance yeah. you let. So after you're up after 50, then you start uh, 
processing the suffering of humanity. You know, that start the collective human consciousness start flowing through you. Mm. So you're you're still having the same tools of connecting with your antaryaman and then not resisting what you experience and responding from the intelligence of the heart. It's really quite simple. You learn how to live through the senses. So the mind is not, the mind is more like a tool. My experience now from that and her question sending in is the mind is a great tool. It is also coming from an intellectual country. So it's not like you give away the mind or the mind is no good and you shouldn't have the mind when you're writing or the divine is here and the mind is there. No, not my experience. The divine can flow through the intellect. The divine can flow through the words or a pen. You know, it's not like you are different from that. You are that too. And you learn to day by day go closer and closer having that relationship to the divine. And you feel it when what you are doing, how you're responding is helping another, is bringing back goodness to you and to the world. Then you're doing something good. So you, you don't analyze so much about it. Sounds good. I mean, I imagine if you're upset because you can't figure out what level you're on, then you can just <laughs> safely assume that you're not on a very high one. And you should just <laughs> just relax and keep, yes. keep on going. <laughs> uh, you said something interesting a minute ago about maybe after level 50 or something, you begin processing the, the stuff of the world. And I've heard a number of p- teachers speak about this, and even recently, and, and in fact... Um, you know, Ramana said that his cancer was due to the fact that he was processing a lot of the stuff from his devotees. Well, at one point, one of his devotees said, hey, why don't you just give us give us all that suffering that you're experiencing, apportion it among us. We, we'll gladly, you know, take a load and take it off you. And, and he said, where do you think I got it from in the first place? Mm-hmm. So have you been experiencing this processing the stuff of the world? And does it make you uncomfortable? Do you feel like it takes a toll on your body, for instance, or do you just kind of digest it and it doesn't really, it's not hurting your health or your, your well-being in any way? It's definitely not hurting my well-being or my health or my body or anything like that. It's a natural occurrence. It's not like I do something. It is just what is happening. Mm-hmm. So it is, the process is the same as with the egg timer when you start, you know, you just you learn after a while, you don't need any egg timer. You're just experiencing life as it is. You don't like say, I'm gonna sit now and, and experience the suffering of the world. It's just, it doesn't matter if it comes from your ancestors, if it comes from your family, if it's the collective human consciousness, or if it's something else. You learn, your brain gets the hang of it, of not resisting what is there. Mm-hmm. And this is a process, I believe. This is a process of how long can you stay with, with that or something? But it's not something the mind is involved in, so it's, um, it's just a natural happening. Do you and sometimes get a feeling for what it is you're processing? Like, oh, this is my family, this is my ancestors, this is something, this is Aleppo, that I'm you know, working out some of that mess, or, do you, you, or is it just more of a... Describe the subjective experience of this. Sometimes the divine, since that is the central thing in my process, is a relationship with the divine or the antaryaman. Mm-hmm. So my antaryaman can sometimes show me uh, a picture of where this is stuck. Maybe some ancestor, something is, is happening and this is causing the problem of the karma of this is happening. So sometimes, yes, I can know what's going on. And 
I can also see the results of me just not resisting it and experiencing it, feeling it, seeing it and not resisting it. And something happens in me and something happens very often in the outer world or with the person. So it's, um, it's a beautiful process to be involved in. And the fact that you don't feel hopeless or helpless because you know that there is a presence inside of you that wants goodness and well things in this world. And the more people that can wake up to it without making a problem about it, without hurting another or hurting oneself, the better this world is going to be. So until that time, whatever suffering is given to me, it's, it's not a suffering. It is a, it's like a non-effort effort. Yeah, you know? it's like a little, assignment that you have to <laughs> take, yes. take care of all right With i'm going to process this I'm, yes. I'm a yes. washing machine and here's a yes. load of laundry yeah. <laughs> but it, it gives joy see it's a win-win kind of thing so it's not like oh i have to take all the suffering of the world because that's how i spend the first part of my life you right. know i'm here to help the world but i went about it the whole the wrong way mm. uh, i tried i thought i had to do everything I mean, as many people I can get into my living room, and they often got well, you know, but that's not what we're here to do. We're not here to have like a burden. That's the reason why we get connected to the divine. If something released on the shoulder. I, I, I go to a masseur sometimes. He goes, it's so weird. How can your shoulders, they're like so loose. Like, Because <laughs> I'm not carrying the, the world's pain. I'll yeah. just let it experience, you know. Yeah. So I, I wish that for everyone, actually. It's, it's a joy to, to not resist. Resistance hurt. To resist the things that is difficult or painful, that is much more painful. I heard one priest today on the Swedish radio. She said something really beautiful. Um, the priest here in, in Sweden is, is perhaps very much more open, but she said, you know, I enjoy going talking to people who have sorrows or have difficulties because I have the divine hand in my back. I can go into the darkness with them. I'm not there to say something that's going to save them. That's not my role. My role is to just be there and listen and, and be there. And I'm safe because I have that in my back. So, so beautiful. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the divine is really... There's a nice metaphor that um, I've heard spiritual teachers use. It's like if... If you're on a train, let's say, um, you don't have to hold your suitcase, you know, to, in, order, in order to get your suitcase to its destination. You can put it down because the train is carrying it and carrying you. So just, yeah. you know, just put the load down and enjoy the ride. Yes, that's a great analogy. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah. So you, you don't have to. I'm yeah. sorry, go ahead. I was going to add something to that train. Please, <laughs> yes. You don't have to run once you're on the train. You don't have to run. It doesn't go any faster. That's true. Pass. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to get there any faster by running up no. and down the aisles. <laughs> Just sit. So you mentioned a few minutes ago that Bhagavan had mentioned that 2012 would be a turning point at the world is awakening and so on. Has he or do you have any vision as to how things are going and whether we're all going to survive or not, and what, what the world may end up like if, uh, if we do survive this transition. Mm. 
yes, I'm, I'm very optimistic about this whole process. But I do feel that it is important that as many people as possible awaken into that intelligence of the heart. Now, it doesn't matter what religious path you're on or what philosophical path you're on or spiritual path or non-path or an atheist, whatever you're on, just so that you help humanity. It's time, it's a high time to come into clarity what this time is all about. We talk about evolution of consciousness. What does that mean? I think it is most important for people to be clear what this time that we're living now is all about. And except for going to India, I'm also very enthusiastic about the Mayan Indians. I've been that since long back. The Mayan calendar that is supposedly ended 2012. And it's not like the world was going to go under. They clearly said that there's an evolution of consciousness that this calendar is built on. And they're build some pyramids and these pyramids has nine levels so there's nine evolutionary levels of consciousness for humanity and what is unique about 2012 which is what the founders of the oneness university are also aligning within is saying that after 2012 there is a new possibility to download the divine consciousness or to merge with the divine like if you can use then the analogy of the Mayan calendar of the pyramid with the nine levels, humanity technically is at the top of the pyramid right now. Like the priest in the old Mayan culture, he was standing there representing that consciousness where we're at. So that is where humanity is actually at. But we are not realizing that many people, most people on this planet are still in resonance with lower levels of consciousness with duality consciousness with seeing things as right and wrong uh, me and the not me and so forth that is where most people are in alignment whereas the evolution of consciousness has taken us into a plateau where we can actually download the divine consciousness our own way without having to belong to any particular path or religion and that is the high time i feel that people start awakening into that there's not one path that is the right one. Because if you have that kind of understanding, it's fine. It's just that we're not in that evolution of consciousness now. The humanity has evolved to the top of the pyramid. And if you were to look at that analogy, what is the next step if you're standing on the top of the pyramid? The heaven. So the heavenly energies, the divine consciousness, is for us humans to learn how to download, to learn how to connect with it, because that's the answer to the problems we have in our world. And not until the evolution of consciousness have come to that point for humanity, where they see we each have to find our own way, whatever path, whatever way we choose, let it be for the goodness. Let me not hurt another or myself or my family. Let's do it in a kind way. And there's so many paths that are helping for this awakening of humanity, as long as you respect each individual's way to do it. Yeah. So it sounds like you're saying that whatever your path, the times are such that it will more readily bear fruit. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's a good time to be yeah. pursuing spiritual development because whatever effort you make, uh, in whatever way, will be much more um, 
productive and you know and your chances of awakening to whatever degree are are much better than they might have been in 1955 or some such time you know definitely definitely <laughs> and we see it you know we see here at our center i have a meditation center and a clinic here and we have events happening every week and there's lots of new curious people like what is going on here and they went and they have nothing they don't know anything about uh, meditation or spirituality but they get an experience they go into that field right away so it has nothing yeah. to do with have you been a meditator for 45 years or are you like you just came off the streets like i have no idea what this is it's like this is kind of cool you know it's like wow i just felt you know and they have shared these experiences and each one's different it's not the beauty of life you know there's not one as like the other yeah I think this is a good point and I think it's an inspiring point and I think more people need to hear it because if you just watch the news you can get kind of discouraged and if you, you know you read about global warming yeah. and what's happening to the oceans and what's happening to the animals and it's every it, it sounds like we're not going to survive as a as a species mm -hmm. much longer but what doesn't make the news is that there's this groundswell of awakening taking place yeah. which is part of the reason I started this show to sort of like make people more aware of that and that groundswell of awakening I think has inc profound implications for the surface level problems that beset mm -hmm. us you know for global warming for political unrest and economic woes and so all that that awakening is going to in some way hopefully help us resolve those things those superficial problems are symptomatic of some deficiency in world consciousness and that deficiency seems to be getting remedied. Yes, and you're doing an amazing work. I love watching your shows. I love watching all your teachers. I oh, just salute you. every one of them and the work that you're doing. It's has such passion from your heart to, to bring in different perception. This is completely in alignment. And, and like you, you speak of the grassroots, maybe you said something else, but I, I, I heard grass. That's, grass that's a good like, phrase for this, yeah. Okay, it's like a grassroots thing. This is how I see it. The analogy of when you do the dishes, you put the water in the sink and then you pull the plug so the water goes down. So we're like close to the plug, you know, where the dirty water goes out because there are <laughs> things that are like, whoa, spinning around. <laughs> yeah, those of us that are like, we're invited to your show or we can share these things. We feel like, whoa, so many things are happening. But so, yes, things are happening, but at the surface, they just go, yeah, things are changing a little bit. <laughs> but they don't know slowly, they're like, they're also coming down until we're all like spinning, going down the drain. <laughs> That's great. In a good sense. In a good sense. <laughs> yeah. Going down the cosmic drain to yeah. in infinity, in the, the infinite, the infinite yeah. sewer system. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good analogy. Yeah. Here's a question that came in from Mark Peters in Santa Clara, California. He asks, is there any simple practice or daily check-in that you would recommend for building the relationship to your Antaryaman? Mm, beautiful question. Oh, yes. This I'm very passionate about. Find your own way, first of all. Find a way that is natural for you or start developing a way. The important thing is that you do it every day. Like you do a vipassana. Vipassana is so beautiful. It's an old Buddhist meditation where you just still the body because then you can see, because the mind that is chattering so much, the mind is directly connected to the body. So if you want to affect the mind or to be able to witness the mind, you need to be in contact with your physical body because there are parts of the physical body where you might have resistance. So if you were to sit down every day and do a vipassana, you just still the body and just be in awareness of the physical body. 
seeing the breathing moving in and out by itself, not interfering, allowing the body to breathe the way it wants to, you would naturally expand your consciousness. Then you can put a focus inside your heart. It's usually the heart that we start to feel the presence, to feel that inner light, and to be interested in your antriyaman in the way that would be natural for you to experience it. You can see it like a golden liquid light, if you like, or can feel it like a presence of joy, of peace, something that wants goodness for you, something that wants to help you in your world. Start relating to it in your own way. The important thing is just like when you brush your teeth, you have to do it every day. If you only brush your teeth once a week, you might as well just forget about it. <laughs> it is no good. Right. So it is the same with connecting into your antriyaman. You connect with it every day. And you can do different things. Like, I love to sing. You know, it doesn't matter if all of Hollywood says you cannot sing, girl. I sing anyway. And I've actually recorded some CDs <laughs> just to show that anybody can chant. Because when you chant the sacred mantras, of the chant, uh, sacred sounds, automatically you are like downloading. It's like having the cable to the internet. It's like, where do I plug it in? I'll sing a mantra because you are like, in the Sanskrit language, there are 3,000 different words for what we call God. So here's 3,000 different nuances, like a diamond with many different facets. So I love to sing mantras. It's a heart opener. So when you do a vipassana, just takes three minutes, just like sit down and just be in awareness of the body, you allow everything. There's like a ticket to joy when you do this. So you know that you don't resist anything. Just welcome everything. Then you put a focus in your heart. Then you can pick up a mantra. You can sing a mantra. You can sing it loud. You can whisper a mantra. Or you can repeat it silently inside. There are different aspects affecting your consciousness in different ways. You can also listen to a mantra if you want. And you just hear the mantra. Or you can talk. You can talk to your divine like it is your best friend. Because eventually you can have that kind of a bhakti relationship and more of a devotional path where it becomes like a super great friend that you ask of help and you can ask a blessing for the day. Or if somebody's feeling bad, your family, someone needs help, you say, please help this family, please help this person. So it's a great way to have a communication and relationship with that inner best friend and spending some minutes every day and at night too, maybe. Isn't that a good idea to do that at night too? Before you go to sleep, because oh, yeah. all these things happen at night. I always like check in. It's like, I'm going to sleep. Please be with me in my, in my dreams. Help me to digest what I need to digest and let me learn more during the night. So I, I talk like that. Yeah, that's it's nice. It's a great way to do it. So you might say in summary, find a practice that seems to work for you. Yes. You know, maybe learn some technique or get a mantra from somebody qualified to give it or whatever. And then just start doing it every day, even even 10 minutes or whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah but but as you say, I think minutes. regularity is, is yeah. important. Definitely. Better 10 minutes a day than two hours once a week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. It's a regular thing that makes a difference. It actually affects the neurons in your brain. You will have a different perception, definitely. I was listening to a guy uh, in an interview recently, and he was saying, you know, the, the way you can tell if a technique is working for you is if you actually enjoy it and yeah. if you feel like doing it. It shouldn't be yeah. something where you have to beat yourself up to sit down and do yeah. something. You should yeah. actually look forward to it. And yeah. so, so find a way of practice that you actually look forward to and that is refreshing and enjoyable mm -hmm. and, you know, it's a highlight of your day. 
make some tea, go and sit down, have some tea with your divine, yeah. <laughs> give them cookies, yeah. <laughs> enjoy, definitely. I don't know if the acoustics would be very good, but do you feel like singing something? Oh, sure. Okay. Yes, if... <laughs> yeah, go ahead, whatever you feel like singing. Okay. I can guide them a little, if but you can, whoever. Whatever you want to do. Uh, I have okay. no idea, but whatever you would like to do. <laughs> well, I'm thinking that there is some viewer that, that are taking part of this, and I'm thinking maybe the viewer. Yeah, right now there's uh, 150 of them or something. I can't quite see a small print, but uh, yeah, there's quite a few people watching now, and then thousands will watch later. Okay, well, that is so cool. So the viewers can kind of get the feel for discovering their own inner presence. So just close your eyes and relax in the body. Feel the feet touching the floor, your legs, your buttocks, your whole hip region, your back and spine, the stomach, your whole belly, whatever is going on, just relax your chest and shoulders, your arms and hands and fingers. Relax your neck and throat. Relax your whole head and your face. Relax. And you can see the breathing happening in and out by itself. You don't have to change the breathing. You just allow the body to breathe the way it wants to breathe. This what you're doing now is a vipassana, an old Buddhist meditation where you're still the body and you're in awareness of every part of your body and you relax it, not resisting anything that might come up. When you do this, you have an expansion in your consciousness where you can see your inner world, your thoughts and feelings, whatever is happening inside of you. Now, you can put a focus inside your heart. In the heart, you usually, easiest, can experience your higher sacred self. However that is for you, as a presence, as a golden light, however that is for you, Allow that presence to move out in every part of your body. Let it move out in every cell of the body. Also emanating outside your body, under your feet, over your head, in front of your body, behind your back, all around your body. Let this golden presence of light move out, all encompassing love, and receive this oneness blessing through this chant. Purnamida Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachade Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Vashishate Purnamida Purnamidam 
पूर्णत पूर्ण मुदचते पूर्णस्य पूर्णमदाया पूर्णमेव वशिष्यते ओम पूर्णमिता पूर्णमिदम पूर्णत पूर्णमुदचते पूर्णस्य पूर्णमदाया पूर्णमेव वशिष्यते शांति 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 and just keep your eyes closed just for a little while and give gratitude inside your heart in whatever way you are experiencing the presence when we give gratitude to that presence within it is like giving fertilizer on that seed of knowing the divine from within every time you give gratitude you always end your time with the divine or with your antaryaman however you relate to it end it always in gratitude that you have this anchor into that unified field of consciousness your sacred self in your own way when you feel complete in your gratitude you take a deep breath and open your eyes in your own time that was nice <laughs> do you want to tell us the meaning of that chant that is a Oh like your dog is called Luna. Right. <laughs> I always think of the moon when I sing that chant. Mm -hmm. It's the full moon. So if you take something away from that which is full, it is still full. Yes. If you add something to it, it is still full. You cannot change it. So if you use the divine every day and you make use of the power of the light, you don't take anything from it. You cannot add something to it. It is complete. It is full like the full moon. Every time there is a a purnima or a full moon I always think of that chant I love that chant That's nice yeah it means this is full that is full taking fullness from fullness fullness remains and you know to me it always reminds me that the the divine is completely permeating everything and that the sort of unmanifest field of all possibilities from which creation arises is not depleted when the creation arises from it and in fact the fullness permeates both there's nothing but fullness it's beautiful thank you for explaining it so beautifully <laughs> <laughs> whatever <laughs> out of the mouths of babes so i think that it would be nice to end on this note since that was so sweet so i want to thank you for you know participating in this and telling such a nice account of your life it was you know very uh, uplifting i think to hear the whole story oh thank you so much brick thank you for the platform you're giving so many of us and for bringing this out to the world of each and every one of us finding our own path i'm so honored and so grateful so deeply grateful to be invited here today thank you so much oh, you're welcome 
So let me make a few little um, concluding remarks. I've been speaking with Annette Karlstrom, and as always, she'll have a particular page on batgap.com, and from there I'll have links to her live stream account, you know, thing and to her website and to her YouTube channel and to her books. So you'll see that there. This is an ongoing series of interviews, as you probably know. If you would like to be reminded whenever a new one is posted, there's a, a tab on BatGap where you can sign up to get the email once a week or so. There's an audio podcast version of this, and there's a tab for that. There's the donate button that I mentioned in the beginning. I appreciate people's support. And um, there are a number of other interesting things if you explore the menus. I always say that because no point in going through them all, but there's not that many things. But if you just pull down the different menus on BatGap, you'll find some interesting little things to check out. So thanks for listening or watching. Thanks again to you, Annette. It's really been a joy. Thank you. <laughs> Thank and, you so much, Rick. And next week I'll be speaking with Roger Castillo. He's in Perth, Australia, and he was a close student of Ramesh Balsakar, who in turn was a student of Nisargadatta Maharaj. And I uh, had a brief conversation with Roger last week, and we really hit it off. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be a, mm -hmm. a really nice interview. So thanks for listening and watching. We'll see you then.